0: This morning we have this section of Scripture, Romans chapter 9, looking at verses 6 through 13 this morning. An incredible section of Scripture, wonderfully rich truths in this section. In fact, if you are coming to Saving Grace for the first time and you're jumping in at this portion of this series, uh, you're jumping into the theological deep end as we come through these chapters. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are profoundly rich, uh, and deep truths for us to navigate through. But I think they are critically important for not only the life of the believer, but also for our perspective and understanding of God. Romans 9-11 through 11, unashamedly emphasizes the sovereignty of God. It is clear of God's sovereign purposes and directing. And I know even if I use the S word, sovereignty, uh, it causes some the kind of uh, shudder in fear, what is it he 's going to say, and what is what are you arguing for? What is it that you're trying to prove? Does man have a free will doesn't he get to choose what he wants to do? How does god 's sovereignty affect his free will? Is it unfair that God is sovereign in directing i I just can't accept that particular doctrine. And it is in this text before us that that doctrine is highlighted and brought to the forefront. Some have thought over the years that this idea, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, is forced upon the Scriptures by zealous theologians, forced on uh, our minds, and it is a misrepresentation of the Scriptures, as if the Word doesn't exist in the Scripture at all. They assume that it is added to the Word of God, but... Here it is very much at the center of Paul's argument for the defense of the character of God. To say this, to get rid of the doctrine of sovereignty is to then to undermine the very character of God. To undermine his attributes, but more importantly to undermine his goodness. To undermine his character. To make him then responding to creation make him unable to carry out any of his promises, the doctrine of sovereignty is very much essential to understanding not only who God is, but what he's accomplishing. And that's evident right here in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And as we go through this, what we're going to see is God defending himself through the pen of the Apostle Paul, God defending his purposes, And even the open rebellion of Israel, even the open hostility that they have towards God and towards the Messiah, towards Christ, does not thwart his purposes at all. In fact, he will accomplish all of his good purposes. And Paul defends that in this case. Now, I know when we head into a section like this, we head into these deeper kind of theological waters, and we're being forced to look at these uh, uh, more academic themes, the temptation to think is, well, that wasn't a very practical sermon, pastor. It was, yeah, you gave me a lot of truths, but it wasn't really helpful for me in my day-to-day life. So as to define application as simply what we do, but there's more to application than that. I know some have come to Saving Grace Bible Church and thought, yeah, you guys aren't very applicational there. It's very heady, very academic. I mean, you've got Dr. Rag teaching, so you got, you got all the academics, but we don't know what to do. They haven't given us anything, you know, you don't come each week saying, well, what are the 12 steps? Here's what you need to practice. But there's more to application than simply what am I to do. There's also what am I to believe? What am I to think about? Really, application starts with a heart renovation, a mind renovation that leads to a life renovation. As the old statements would say, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. An orthodox doctrine, a sound doctrine, leads to sound living and sound practice. You can't, ha- they, they're not divorced from one another. I remember this like as a parent, when my kids were little, my kids would come up and as they were growing up, I'd tell them, do this. It's time for bed. You must eat this. You must do these chores. And the kids would do those things, but eventually they'd get to the point and they would ask the famous question, Why? Why do I have to go to bed? Why do I have to eat that? Why do I have to do this chore? And when they were small, it was my joy to say to them, because I told you. (laughs) I love that statement. Because God commanded in Ephesians 6 that you obey your parents, and this is right, and it comes with a promise, and that is sufficient for you to know you must do it because I told you. But as they got older, it had to change where I had to give an answer to the why question, where I had to tell them how I was thinking about life and what was important for them, where they had to learn the principle behind the command. And so as they got older, I explained it to them. And as they were mature, as their minds had developed, as they could understand, they could see the reasons why we made the decisions we made. The same thing grows in our own spiritual maturity. Usually, as new believers, we just obey simply because this is what God has called us to. But as we mature, we see the depths of the riches of God and His work. We understand the why. I can tell you, I didn't come out in the new birth immediately recognizing all of God's purposes and ways. I just knew one day I hated God, the next day I loved Him. I didn't know how to explain that. I just knew what it was experientially. But as I read the scripture, and as I understand God's purposes and ways, then I could put voice to it. Here's what God was doing in his work. I knew one day I hated him. I wanted nothing to do with him. He changed my heart, and the next day I loved him, and I wanted to be with him. And how how did he accomplish this good work? Well, that's the glory of what we get to study in God's word. Now, here in this section... Paul is going to renovate our minds, and particularly he's renovating the minds of this hostile Jewish group that is accusing Paul of preaching a gospel that would demonstrate that God has some kind of character flaw. In their mind, as a Jew, if God, they were the chosen people of God, if they were the ones of the promise, if they had received the promises, the covenants, if they had received all of the prophets, if they have received all of the, the promises God had given them, they have received the very oracles of God, they're the ones who bring the law. And then God has abandoned them, and he's going out and saving the Gentile throughout the world. They're thinking to themselves, God... Your God, Paul, is duplicitous. The God you're saying abandoned his promises, abandoned his purposes, abandoned his people, and has gone on to a new people, and something's wrong with your God, Paul. That's what Paul has to answer. That is the problem. Verse 6, Romans 9, 6. Well, you can start in verse 4. Who are Israelites, to whom belongs, and notice all these Promises. They belong to the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. Who are the fathers, for whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. And then the problem, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Has God failed to fulfill his promise? Has he failed to accomplish his Is what he had promised to deliver his people? This is the question at hand. Paul, your gospel is a gospel that makes God unfair. That he doesn't complete what he starts. That he promises, but he doesn't deliver. And that's why I can't embrace your gospel. And that's what Paul has to answer here. In Romans 9, 6-13, is God unfair in his dealings? This has been the issue in the hearts of the secular Jew, is is God trustworthy? Certainly can't believe the Christian message. In their minds, and one Jewish author wrote, the Messiah wasn't Jesus Christ, the Messiah is the nation Israel. The Messiah is... Here, as the nation of Israel exists, that's the Messiah, says one Jewish author. And here he gives five parallels between the Christian message of Christ versus the secular Jewish message of the nation of Israel. Listen to these five parallels that they would say. They would say the Messiah who was born, we would say from the scriptures, the Messiah is born of sovereignty by God. And the Christian says, this is Christ who was born sovereignly as a result of God. But they would say, no, that's really the nation of Israel. They were born by God's sovereignty. Scriptures teach that the Messiah was protected in Egypt. Just like Christ, when he was protected from Herod's persecution, was taken out and into Egypt. But they would say, no, this was the nation of Israel, protected by God when he was led into Egypt. And in Egypt, they were allowed to grow. The Messiah is despised and rejected and hated. And so Christians think that's Christ, but the secular Jew says, no, that's the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is despised, rejected, and hated. The Messiah was killed by the Romans. The Christian recognized that that's Christ who was killed by the Romans. The secular Jew says, no, that was the Roman destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The Romans were the ones who killed off the nation of Israel. Messiah will raised on the third day, and the Christians say that's Christ, but they'd say, no, actually, that was the nation of Israel. After 2,000 years of being dead, they were raised up out of captivity and restored. It's like another Jew who says, no, we don't believe the gospel of God. We don't believe your message, Paul. We don't believe the message of the Christian. We have ultimately replaced that message of the Messiah, Israel, the nation, is the Messiah. Paul is confronting a theological perspective that doesn't trust in the message of Jesus Christ. And to defend it here, Paul gives the proof to his... He gives the problem, and he gives the solution to the problem in verse 6. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And then he proves from two Old Testament examples that point. He proves it from the life of Abraham and the choosing of Isaac over Ishmael and the life of Rebekah choosing Jacob over Esau. These two different examples, Paul demonstrates that not all Israel are Israel. And the word of God hasn't failed. That God in his sovereign choosing and purposes has selected one and accomplished his good purposes. His plan is not thwarted by the wickedness of men. His plan is not to uh, change at all. He hasn't redirected his promise, moving off of a, 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 a Messiah, an individual, who's going to sit on the throne of David and, and then expanded it to a nation and changed the definition. No, God is accomplishing his good purposes and the wickedness of man cannot athwart, thwart it. That's what Paul proves here. So let's just walk through this. And here's, again, here's the outline. You have the verse 6a, the beginning of it. That's the problem. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. The solution to the problem, the second half of verse 6. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And now the proof to that solution. First one is this, verse 7 through 9. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Here's the first proof. It's the proof from Abraham's life. Now Consider Abraham for a moment. And we can actually just look at Abraham's life. Let's turn over to Genesis chapter 12 and just walk through the early accounts of Genesis and let's just look at Abraham's life. We're introduced to Abraham in our study today in chapter 12. Chapter 12, God finds Abram in Haran. He finds Abram and he's going to send him from Haran. Genesis chapter 12. And start in verse 1. says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And then you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. So verse 4, So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now notice, Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. This is where we are introduced now to the story here of Abram. 75 years old, old man. He is sent out leaving his family's land heading to a whole new country which he has not known and in this was the great blessing verse 2 the promise the covenant to him i'm going to make you a great nation i will bless you and i'll make your name great so you shall be blessed what one what must happen for somebody to be made into a great nation he must have children He must have heirs. Heirs who produce other heirs that keep expanding. That's what must happen here. 75 years old. Jump over to chapter 14, or or chapter 15, actually. Jump over to chapter 15. We pick up in verse 5 actually, verse four, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This is to Abram saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who notice will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, verse five, now look towards the heavens and count the stars. If you were able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. He's going to, again, your descendants, Abraham, are going to be as numerous as the stars in the heaven. If it's even possible for you to count all the stars in the heaven, this is the promise to you. That's your descendants. You're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in heaven. And on top of that, they're going to be descendants, verse 4, that come from your own body. You're going to have children, they're going to come, they're going to be numerous. Jump over to chapter 16, in verses 1 through 3, notice what he says there. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar, so Sarai said to Abram, "Now, behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into this maid; perhaps I will obtain children through her." This moment of weakness, and you can see, actually, in the next verse, verse three, after Abram has lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. Now you get the scenario. At the age of 75, Abram gets this promise. God is going to make him a father of many nations, a great nation. He reiterates the promise. He's going to be a physical child of yours, and as numerous as the stars of heaven are the numerous of your descendants. And now, ten years after that promise, at the age of 85, he's looking around saying, it's not happening. 85 years old, no children yet, and the prospect in his mind that have children is growing dimmer and dimmer, and even at this point now, in chapter 16, Sarah has lost hope. So it must not be for me. Must be then through my maiden, handmaiden here, through Hagar. And so, as the end of verse 3 says, that Abram goes, or actually jump down to verse 15 and 16. So, Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So he goes, he has a child, he has a child through Ishmael, so now Abraham has a child. This must be the child of the promise, right? This must be the fulfillment of what God had said back, you know, 11 years ago. Now we jump over to chapter 17. We get an update. Now when Abraham was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Now I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Again, here God comes and he reiterates his promise. And he now, this is 24 years later, he is 99 years old. Jump down to verse 24 of chapter 17. Now Abraham was 99 years old. And he has the covenant established. Jump over to chapter 18 and verse 9 and 10. It says, Then he said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, There in the tent. And he said this, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Ultimately, it's indeed exactly what happens. Abraham has a child with Sarah. That child is Isaac. Now the point is this. God had been promising through Abram that he was going to bless him and make him the father of many nations, that he have many descendants. And he had been, blessed. He had been making this promise for over 25 years before it was finally fulfilled. He's 100 years old at this point. Now Abraham, when, the, when Isaac is born, now has two children, Ishmael and Isaac. I'll turn back to Romans 9. That is the historical setting. Now notice Paul's comment on that historical setting. Verse 7 of Romans chapter 9. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. How many descendants did Abraham physically sire? Well, we know two immediately, Ishmael and Isaac. They're both not descendants. One's a true descendant and one is not, though they're both physically from Isaac. That's what he says in verse 7. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. It's not there because of physical relationship. It's there because of the promise, the covenant. Verse eight. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. Here's the first key. Here is Abraham. You're blessed not because of the wor- of the works you have done, not because of your fleshly doing, but because of God's doing, God's work, God's declaring, God's promises. It's the difference between Ishmael and Isaac God chose Isaac chose that as verse 9 says for this is the word of promise at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son God fulfilled his covenant promise through Sarah now one at this point might say well yeah okay What happened there? Yeah, God had two choices. He could choose through Ishmael or Isaac. And he wasn't going to choose through Ishmael because Hagar wasn't Abraham's true wife. It was through through Sarah. So it had to be through Sarah. So someone might argue there that this wasn't about, it was because Abraham chose the wrong woman to bear a child through. So the second illustration. If this one isn't strong enough, then the point, again, that Paul is trying to prove is it is on God's choosing, not on man's doing. That's what he's saying there in verse 8. That is, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God. Just because Abraham had a child is not from his doing that fulfilled this covenant promise, but it is God's choice, God's promise. That's the working. Someone might accuse Abraham's situation of being too messy, So notice the second proof, verses 10 through 13. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Now this is significant. All right, so here is the second scenario. Isaac goes out and he finds a wife, and his wife is Rebekah. And literally the text says this, when through one conjugal act twins are born, it's emphatic that Paul says here. Through one act of Isaac and Rebekah, twins are born. What happened? Verse 11. And those, these twins, we know, are Jacob and Esau. He says, verse 11, For though the twins were not yet born, and not, had not yet done anything good or bad... Notice at this point, when was the co- covenant promise made? It tells us it was before they were born, it was before they had done anything, before they had expressed any will, before they had expressed anything of their character, before they had done anything good or bad. Why? So verse 11, so that God's purpose according to his Choice, literally according to his electing, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. To demonstrate that God chooses, that God elects, that God is directing according to his sovereign will, he chose Jacob above Esau. So he says in verse 12 and 13, It was said to her, The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved. But Esau I hated. The demonstration is that God's choosing, God's purposes, that he came along and selected. It's not on the act of the will of man. It's not on the act of the flesh. It's not on the act of man's purposes. It's all according to God selecting, God's choosing. There's nothing about Jacob that made him greater. He was born later. He was the lesser, and yet God chose through him to bless him, to be a child of the covenant, the promise. In fact, Paul is building on this particular case. Jump down to Romans chapter nine and verse twenty-seven. Notice what he, what Paul does there. Paul quotes Isaiah. Isaiah. He says, cries out concerning Israel. He says, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 20 through 22, Isaiah the prophet says, Israel is numerous. There are many sons of Israel, and yet only the remnant out of Israel will be saved. You See, this is the point that Paul is making back in verse 6. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. It's because they were physically related to Abram, just because they were physically related to Isaac, did not make them a child of the covenant, a child of the promise. child of the covenant, a the child of promise, is a child of God's, God's sovereign work, His promises. His choosing. And this has been taught through the Old Testament. Again, it's illustrated right there in Abraham's case. It's illustrated in, in Isaac's case with Rebekah and his wife and his sons, Jacob and Esau. It's illustrated in the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah ten, twenty-two, or twenty through twenty-two. It's reiterated in Jeremiah chapter fifty and verse twenty when God says, I have a remnant. The whole language of a remnant throughout the Old Testament is proof of this very principle. In fact, turn over one chapter, Romans chapter 11 and verse 5. Paul brings up this very language. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time, notice, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. There is a remnant. There is a faithful few. There are those that God is preserving and protecting. This is God's sovereign purposes and His directing. Now, I say all of that, and some of you, your minds are just just spinning out of control. Wait a second. There are questions. The very first question is, how is this fair? I'm glad you asked that. Turn back to chapter nine and verse 14. That's exactly what Paul anticipates. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? There's no unfairness. God isn't unjust, is he? He answers the fairness question. One, looking at sovereignty and salvation, thinks, well, it must not be fair. If God is choosing and God is saving some and not others, that's unfair. Well, Paul anticipates that argument from verse 14 to the end of chapter 9, verse 33. We will address the fairness question. Well, maybe the other question you ask is this. Well, then, if, God, if salvation is based on sovereignty and God choosing, then how is anyone saved? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because that's chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1 through the end. Verse thir- 21, Paul answers the how one is saved when God is sovereign question. So we will answer both objections as Paul unfolds them in time. The point for us is this. Paul's defense is when he's seeing Israel's rebellion, when he's seeing Israel's hostility, Israel's rejection of the gospel, he's saying this, God is still sovereign. He's still accomplishing his purposes. He's going to fulfill his covenant promises, and Israel's rebellion isn't going to thwart him. Israel's hostility isn't going to to cause him to change course. Israel's rebellion isn't going to cause him to turn on his own covenant promises. In fact, he's going to fulfill his covenant promises exactly. Just as he's already said in the Old Testament, not all Israel is Israel. Not all who are physically descended of the promise are part of the promise. He hasn't, nothing has thwarted his plan at all. He loved Jacob and not Esau. He chose Isaac and not Ishmael. He's always had a remnant and he'll continue to preserve that remnant and he will accomplish his good purposes. And his sovereignty does not hinder his work. It actually preserves and protects his character and protects his sovereign work. And as I said, starting next week, we'll answer the first objection. How is that fair? Let me draw two implications for us this morning as we think about this. Three implications actually. First implication is this. I mean, again, if you hold to that form of theology, Arminian theology, and you struggle with the idea of sovereignty, then how do you give an account for the rebellion of Israel? If God's not sovereign, and if man's free will is sovereign, and man is directing everything, then God is hopeless, wanting to fulfill his covenant promises, but just can't, because man's free will just keeps... Undoing his promises. And God can't accomplish anything. And he's just hoping that everything works out. That's not how Paul argues the character of God at this point. He argues that God is preserving and protecting and accomplishing all of his good purposes. And he's, again, he's, we stumble over the words there in verse 11. That so that God's purpose, according to his electing or his choice, would stand. So according to his predestined plan, according to his electing, would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Paul goes right to the sovereignty of God and anchors that flag and says, This is what protects the integrity of the gospel of God. So the first implication is then we don't preach these things simply because some dead theologian emphasized it. We preach it because this is how Paul the Apostle defended the character of God in the gospel. Second implication is this. If you have the tendency then to replace Israel with the church and you're thinking that somehow with a high view of sovereignty you're protecting God, you're not protecting sovereignty at all. What is... What demonstrates the greatness of God's sovereignty more than this? The open hostility of Israel does not thwart his purposes. The open rejection of their Messiah, the open hostility they had, and God continues to wait even thousands of years later when he causes Israel to turn back and see the one they pierce and weep over that one and believe in that Messiah, and they turn to their God and believe. It's going to demonstrate God's sovereign purposes. That, he, that man cannot thwart his will at all. But one more implication for us. And the big implication would be this. I was thinking about the practical application of this truth for us. Paul is saying back in verse 6, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel that sometimes our children have the difficulty of running into this very passage here. As parents, we teach our kids the Word of God. We take them to church regularly. We put them in VBS. We put them in midweek church. We teach them how to pray, and they begin to think, Daddy, I'm a Christian just like you're a Christian. I read the Bible. I want to share the good news with my neighbors. I'm just like you because... They've grown up in a Christian environment. They've been taught the language. And I would want to say to my kids and anyone who grows up in a Christian home or anyone who's just around Christians for a long time, you need salvation just like I do. You need to believe upon God just like I had to believe. You don't enter into eternal life because you're born into the right family. It's not heritage. You don't enter into eternal life because you've been trained by the right teachers. It's not by training that you enter into salvation. It's not by heritage that you enter into salvation. It's not by right that you enter into salvation. It's not because you have some right because you have great Christian family. Even if your Christian family has been used by God in many ways, it does not grant you the right into eternal life any more than the Jews had the right to eternal life because of all the covenant promises they had received what kind of promises we saw that back in verse 4 and 4 4 and 5 they had the adoptions they had the glory they had the covenants they had the giving of the law they had the temple service they had the promises they had the fathers they had all the heritage all the privilege that did not make them redeemed that was one saved we go right back to romans chapter 3 and this is what paul tells us romans chapter 3 and verse 21 and following this is the gospel that paul was proclaiming it says apart from the law the righteousness of god has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. for There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Does everyone have sinned? Everyone has rebelled. That's what Paul has demonstrated from chapter 1, verse 16 through chapter 3, verse 20. The universal guiltiness of all, Jew first and Gentile, all are guilty and under need of salvation from the penalty of God, from his wrath. Those who believe, those who have faith in Christ, they shall be saved. Verse 24 being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, to whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, that it, that was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed, but the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. The answer is, for anyone, you're saved, that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you believe that he has taken your penalty, that he has gone to the cross on your behalf, that he has bore your penalty for sin. And that faith in him, that God then credits you with his righteousness, that you're able to stand before God. Again, it's not the act of human will. It's not the act of something I've done. It's not the act of some uh, work I've done in my family to save them. It's the act of God. The act the work of Christ on our behalf. That's why Paul will go on and say in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Salvation is the result, again, the believing in the promise of God, believing in his covenant promise that he will save those who have faith in Jesus Christ. It's not will. It's not of the flesh. It's not of heritage. This is critical back into Romans chapter 9 because it proves then man cannot thwart God's saving purpose. It proves that even man's rebellion and man's hostility isn't going to stop God from accomplishing all of his good purposes, that he'll carry them out. And even if we are stumbling in believing this particular promise, we can recognize that God has been making this clear through the Old Testament. Through Abraham's example, through Rebecca's example, with Jacob and Esau, through the example of the remnant throughout God's sovereignty is preserved and protected. When we come back next week and we look at this, we're going to start to look at the fairness question. So I know that this is the stumbling block for us to understand sovereignty. is how can God be sovereign and salvation still be fair? How come he's not saving everybody? Everybody has to be saved. If he's sovereign and he's good and he's all-loving, then everybody has to be saved. He's going to answer that particular argument. And as well then, how we are to view God in the midst of it. So we'll pick up on that next week. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we are mindful of your marvelous grace. Mindful that you, your truth comforts us, even when we are overwhelmed by these grand doctrines. When they seem to be too wonderful for us, when they seem to be too much is in the teaching of these truths and believing them that our hearts are comforted and we see the riches of your glory. And we come to your word not to exalt our own will, our own understanding. We come to see you unfolded, come to hear you explain your purposes and your ways so that we would rest in understanding what your good accomplishments are and not our own understanding. In the midst of it, then we would also learn not to trust in ourselves, but to trust in you entirely. For it is upon you that we turn to when we are in despair. It is on you we turn when we are feeling overwhelmed by life. When we feel hopeless and have no power, you're the one who has all power, all wisdom and strength. And we are even able to accomplish all of your good purposes Uh, despite man's rebellion, man's unbelief and hostility, so that we know nothing will thwart your good purposes. And in your good hand, you demonstrate the riches of your love towards us, the chosen, the elect. Even uh, us who have rebelled against your word, you have radically transformed us so we pray, Father, as a response that it would produce within us humility and brokenness, not a pride because of your electing grace, but a humility because we recognize that we are undeserving. In the midst of this humility, we also pray, Father, then for a greater love for the things that you love. For we know you are still saving, you're still calling people to yourself, you're still using the means of gospel messengers to go out and proclaim. And so out of an act of faith, we yield, trusting your will and purposes knowing that you will accomplish all of your goodwill. So when we're tempted to be in despair, Father, may we turn our eyes off of ourselves and fix them entirely upon you. And may we see the riches of your glory, which you have declared through your scriptures, that you will accomplish all of your good pleasure. And the gospel does not discredit your character. It actually magnifies the riches of your grace and purposes. So may we rejoice in what you've revealed about yourself through your word.